Welcome to In Transition, a program dedicated to the practice of content communication in the public sector. Here's your host, David Pembroke. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome once again to In Transition, the podcast that examines the practice of content communication in government and the public sector. My name's David Pembroke, and thank you for joining us once again. We've got a great guest this week, and what we're going to be doing this week is really looking at at the web changes in the web as as a publishing platform and how, in fact, we can take advantage of those changes in order for us to be able to communicate more effectively with citizens and stakeholders. But before we come to my introduction to this week's guest, we start with the definition as we do each week. So content communication is a strategic, measurable and accountable business process that relies on the creation, curation and distribution of useful relevant and consistent content. The purpose is to engage and inform a specific audience in order to achieve a desired citizen and or stakeholder action. So there we go. So to my guest this week, it's John Alsop, who has a background in computer science and mathematics, which to me seems like a a great combination to have at this time as computer science and mathematics really starts to take hold of the communication area. For nearly 20 years, he's developed software for web developers, built websites, applications, written articles, tutorials for print online publications. In 2000, he wrote A DAO of Web Design, which over a decade later continues to be widely cited as the theoretical foundation for responsive web design. He is involved in all sorts of things, including Web Directions conference series and all the time that he spends or the free times that he has, he lives in a lovely little part of Sydney or just outside of Sydney and uh, in a part where he's able to look out over the ocean. So it sounds like a a fantastic place to live and he joins me from there now. So, John, uh, welcome to In Transition. Thank you so much. Thanks, David. I'm actually in my office in Surrey Hills, which is... Uh, a, a little commute from, from <laughs> Bundina. Yes. Oh, okay. So you're uh, down in Bundina, down in the southern part of right. Sydney. That's right, just in the Royal National Park. So oh. it's a great place to be. Oh, fantastic. Uh, so you live in the Royal National Park? Yeah, that's right. So so there are a couple of little towns that are actually in uh, surrounded by National Park. Yeah, right, okay. Uh, and just bu- up in the it, north end. Yeah, and, and Bundina being one of them. Yeah, that's the sort of big one that most people probably know of. Yeah, it's it's a spectacular part of Sydney, isn't it? We've got a lot of um, uh, listeners from all around the world, and I think to understand Bundina in that beautiful part of Sydney, particularly, I you know coming from out of town when you fly up from Canberra or you fly in from overseas, it's it's just that little bit that's not far outside of Sydney, and it's absolutely majestic. Yeah, it's so close to, to the city itself in a lot of ways. Uh, you know, people commute. It's a long commute, but a good commute. And as you say, a lot of people fly over it. It's very, very – well, just out offshore. So it's um, – if, if you're sort of flying north into Sydney and you look over the uh, port or out to your left, you'll see uh, like the Royal National Park and its beaches and then you'll you'll see Bundina. So flying in back home or flying away for that matter, uh, I see it 
um, all the time. It's either it's either welcome me me home or I'm feeling sad as I leave. But uh, yeah, it is a wonderful place to be. But obviously, but right now I'm in Surrey Hills, which is in the in the heart. Yeah, right in the Sydney. right in the heart of Sydney, indeed. But as I say, many people listen to this podcast when they're driving in their cars, and I can imagine someone sitting in traffic in San Francisco at the moment, sitting there thinking, eh, I wouldn't mind being in Bundina right now. Yeah. But 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 obviously being down there and having time to reflect. Where where is your head at at the moment in terms of the changes in the technology and how communicators can best use those changes in order to create the relationships they need to support their their government program services regulations whatever it is whatever that story is that they're trying to tell right so look I guess where I try to live and I have for many years is sort of thinking about what comes next now you know the world's full of futurists. Uh, and and a lot of it is, um, you know, a lot of the ways we predict the future are pretty bad, and that includes massive corporations who build extraordinary products like you know Google Glass that end up, you know, not really being the future at all. So it, it's a very it's a kind of interesting but also challenging place to be. And I think a lot of people, when they think about the idea of futurism and think about the future, they kind of roll their eyes and sigh. And I think that's a lot of the time very fair, but. And it's something I do a lot of, partly because we put together these conferences and, and we cr- try and bring in people who can help inspire others to think what does come next. So it is something I think about all the time. And I, I tell you, there are a couple of things that really are interesting in me now, and I think they overlap very strongly with with communication. Because, it, look, if you think about the end of the day, the entire point of, well, not just the web, but just about everything humans do is really just about communicating, right? Yeah. Um, uh, and there's an interesting thing because that we communicate with other humans, often mediated, increasingly mediated by machines, and we communicated with the machines themselves. And I think there's some very interesting things happening in both those areas that that kind of I think people should be paying some attention to. Um, probably some of the things people have been thinking about a bit. So the first, so I've got I'm working on this idea that I'm going to be talking about, funnily enough, in San Francisco or just outside at a conference in a few weeks there. Um, It's a conference for front-end developers, so it's kind of very technical, but it's called Fluent and it'll be in San Jose. And the idea is what I call the end of personal computing. Um, And there's a long story around this and we probably don't have time to go into all of it, but I guess the idea is that we've seen a number of waves of computing over the last 50 or 60 years, right? The mainframe and then the mini and, you know, David, you and I probably remember at least partially some of some of that. And I certainly remember the rise of the personal computer, right? I literally, you know, in, in my early teens, remember when personal computers, I'm talking pre-IBM PC became a thing. Yeah. And so I think for the last 40 years, probably since you could you could probably start at around 76, 77 with the rise of Apple One and the Sinclair and and and, and the, the Tandy TRS-80, you know, we've had this period of personal computing. And the mobile phone we all carry in our pocket and hold in our hand and there's never more than centimetres from us at any point is still really part of that ongoing wave, that paradigm of computing. Like, So what, what is that paradigm of computing? It's, it's um, Basically, it's a piece of glass that we look at and that we import data into by typing and that we read data from. So the, the modality hasn't changed in a lot of ways, right? Yes, there's a little bit of voice and there's a little – but at the end of the day – how we use the Apple One and how we use the iPhone 7 or, you know, fill in whatever blanks you like is remarkably similar, right? Yeah, that interaction, the, 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 at the interaction point with the computer, it's, it's not, not a whole lot different. But obviously the network effect or the ability to connect to much greater 
forms of, of, of rich media is, is obviously much different. Absolutely. So, so in terms of the human computer experience, though, it, it is very, very similar. As yeah. you say, we've had this you know, extraordinary increase in, in the, you know, the potential of our network so that we go from, you know, uh, you know, a sort of 900 board modem that can kind of barely keep up with typing through to, you know, the sort of streaming that we get from the likes of Netflix and so on. That, yeah. um, you know, those things are profound changes. But I, 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 you can still essentially wrap them up in, in, in a single paradigm in many respects. Uh-huh. And, and, and I think I would, would summarize that all above all by saying computers are really dumb, right? They literally sit there waiting for us to click or tap or type or give some sort of command, and then they respond to us. So we're, but if you think about it in these terms, we are slaves to them, right? They won't do much of anything for us unless we tell them what to do and, and in many ways how to do it, right? Yeah. And, and so to me, this is a really interesting phenomenon in that we call it personal computing, but in some ways I see it as very impersonal, like depersonalizing, because most of the time humans, or a great deal of the time, humans spend with other humans, Right? We talk and we, we, we communicate in all these different subverbal, nonverbal, visual ways and so on. And yet as soon as you put a computer into that mix, it completely interrupts the, the human component of that. Right? We've all pretended to have a conversation or some sort of relate, some sort of ongoing relationship with a phone involved. And and the moment someone pulls out, say, Oh, I'm just checking that you know, just checking conversations over. It's finished, right? And yet, if you think about it, 10 people can sit around a dinner table and conduct multiple conversations and pick up threads and leave them behind. And that's perfectly natural. We're really good at that. But when, as soon as we look at a screen, we, we are, and especially to try and decipher little squiggles and, and turn them into words, we are using so much of our cerebral, cerebral cortex in order to, to do that, that we basically shut out the rest of the world, right? So this is a, this is a long and rambling bit, obviously, but I'm trying to set up the idea that Computing kind of stops the moment we we start a relationship with someone else, right? Unless it completely mediates that relationship, unless it's us texting one another through the medium of the computer. So what I'm really interested in is a couple of things. But one of them is the ears. Now, we've long had this obsession with the idea of the next computing paradigm is we're going to talk to our computers. Um, you know, like obviously the likes of Siri and Cortana and, and, all, and Alexa now out of, out of Amazon are really interesting phenomena. But to be quite honest, um, I've always been skeptical that they will become general computing paradigms. I'm much more interested in computing that sits in our ears. And, you know, I obviously, you know, a famous example recently is the, the film Her by Spike Jones that kind of explores perhaps a little bit extraordinarily um, the, the idea that, that people might fall in love with a, some sort of virtual agent. But I think a lot of the, the human computer interaction stuff that's in there is really, really interesting. And if you start thinking about devices like Apple's EarPods, um, which is, uh, you know, have been a phenomenon, you still wait weeks to get a pair from them. Um, I think that might give us a hint toward where some of the human computer interaction is going. It's not to say we're not going to still use phones, we're not going to still use our laptops, but in the same way we still use mainframes for what we used them for 30, 40 years ago, I think we'll use personal computers in the sense we have them for creating content and consuming content in, in the ways we currently do. But we're going to I think we'll start seeing computing and computer interactions permeating far, far more. For many years, we've listened to radio, right? But radio was very much constrained by licensing laws and, and, and you know, and, and a whole heap of other technical constraints. You can only listen to a small number of things. Now you can literally listen to anything you like from anyone in the world, anywhere you are. 
Um, and I think that's a little example, perhaps, of, of the sorts of change in which we're going to see distribution information. Um, but if you imagine if we've always got a computer that's potentially able to talk to us, I think there's something really interesting around that. So that's one of the big macro trends. I'm not saying tomorrow afternoon that's going to change everything we do, but I really think there's something very interesting in that. So that's in terms of how people receive information and interact with information. You said through the ears, is that right? Yeah, so so think of it like this. Um, there there are a lot of people who have computers embedded in, in into their heads that help them hear better, right? Now, sure. uh, now, is there any reason why at the moment that's just restricted almost entirely to people who have some hearing hearing loss, whether it's you know, congenital or you know however they got that loss, right? But why doesn't it make sense for for those of us who have reasonably good hearing already to perhaps have it improved by um, some sort of implant, right? And then once that's there, why can't it constantly be able to communicate to a network and provide very context-based information? Obviously, we want to be in control of it, right? But, you know, give you a heads up about something that's happening around you as you walk down the street, by way of example, right? Or reminders of, of, of things that you need to do. And the, the, a lot of the things we use mobile devices for now, we pull them out of our pockets or, you know, increasingly, you know, at least Apple thinks that we're going to look at our wrists, um, for, for reminders about things, but why do we need that device that gets between us and, you know, the, why does it have to work like that? So I'm very interested in in what happens when people – now, we don't even necessarily need these things embedded into our ears. Um, you know, I think Apple's ear, ear, uh, AirPods, they call them, are a good example of a, of a sort of pretty unobtrusive, very ex- powerful device that we can kind of leave in our ears most of the time. Yeah, it's kind of early adopter days and you probably look a bit silly doing it to some extent. But I think it's a kind of a hint of what might come next. And then so as people who communicate, you know, and think about communication, how do you communicate with someone who's kind of always listening? Now, you obviously don't want to bombard them with information, but what is the right amount of information to really help them improve the quality of their day? Right. That's a whole avenue, I think, that we barely begun to think about in terms of communication strategy. To, to me, is, it follows from this observation that I think people are going to have their ear, earphones in more and more of the time. I mean, kids grow up, young kids, uh, they, they spend half their lives with earphones in, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so, so it's not the, the Elon Musk sort of transplant device that you're sort of looking towards. It's more being well, able to... Yeah, like, so that's a good observation you make around that because I think there is something it, – it isn't entirely dissimilar to so that idea of the neural lace that, yeah. that Musk has been talking about. So if you think about what's the path there and whether – I'm not entirely sure that's a great place to go, but that's a whole separate issue. But 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 a long way short of going all the way there, um, we can augment our brain, um, you know, having uh, – you know, we already do it, right? Like Musk makes the observation the phone is an extension of our brain, right? It, it's, it's, it gives us access to the – to sort of the vast sum of human knowledge. The challenging part is that there's a friction around getting access to it. No small part, you have to pull out a device and go through the process of, of kind of accessing that information, right? So yeah, so I, I see it in some ways as, as a step in that direction. Um, you know, it, it may be a long way from that, but it does really interest me, um, you know, how do we take our interactions with computing <clears throat> beyond where we're, we're able to do it now. And what's the limiting factor right now? It's, well, if you're looking at a screen as you walk down the street, people will get hit by cars, right? 
um, by way of example, right? So there's a sort of, or when we're having a conversation with someone, we pull our phone out, you know, I, I would argue that it is not simply a cultural problem as to why that gets in the way of conversations in relationships. I actually just think the way our brain functions is we, we simply can't multitask when we're trying to turn squiggles on a screen into mm -hmm. words. We, it's just, it's using too much of our cerebral capacity in order it, to allow us to, to have an ongoing relationship with someone at that moment. But so, I, I get where I get where you're coming from because I think there is this, and and where we get to and how far we get there, you know, how fast we get there, and and what people are prepared to accept and not to accept in terms of that interaction with uh, communication. Because even as you say, the the phone as it is at the moment sits no far, not too far away from us at, at any given point in time uh you know the phone and the screens have now come into people's bedrooms where people are sitting up at night watching netflix and so the impact on people's relationships through technology is happening and it's happening anyway in just day-to-day -day in interactions but then it's trying to anticipate at what level i suppose uh the development of, of, of social mores and acceptances and other things, because I think the technology that will get there a whole lot faster than humans will in terms of their acceptance of it. But then it is, I suppose, to understand what is that next step in the, in the next three, four, five years that can, I suppose, give people uh, who work in government communications that understanding of where are the areas that they should be perhaps... Um, applying their attention because, you know, every galah in the pet shops talking about uh, virtual reality, you know, artificial intelligence, machine learning. But where, where in that next period of time do you see this, this change moving to that would be, you know, it, it better, better prepare someone to be, become a, a more effective communicator in the next sort of three to five years? Right. So what I'm talking about there, I think you've made a good observation, is, is quite speculative and something I think it's always worth people thinking about longer term trends. But he's certainly sort of, I think, probably at the far end of the, 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 the window of time you've given me. The thing that I'm really interested in, and you've, you've touched on a few things. So at the moment, what are the really, what are the hot things people are talking about? Let's talk about VR, yeah. right? I, I think we could have a long conversation about whether there is the, a there there and what that there is. Yeah. And, um, I'm not sure. Not like I, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I, I, I get it. I can see it. But in the next three to five years, I'm not sure that there's a direct application that you're going to be thinking, okay, we must have that. Um, as part of our armory in terms of, you know, creating engage engagement with, with citizens and stakeholders. Yeah, I, I, would, I would caution anybody in this current, you know, time frame to think about Second Life and, and you know, the investment and the excitement. That you, you, know, you remember that, I David. Do. I do. You, remember, like, you know, ABC investing non-trivial amounts of money, creating kind yeah, of lane Telstra, of everybody right. was in there. Right. I would caution people to think about it in those terms, right? Um, and I'm very happy to continue this conversation with anybody over a cup of tea or you know, in any capacity. Um, but and and so similar, so falling into a similar bucket as that to some extent is augmented reality. Yeah. Um, I would suggest, and I won't go, I won't go on much more about this. I would suggest the, the way in which a lot of what we expect augmented reality to do for us will actually emerge as will be actually through our ears rather than through our eyes. Right. So 
that sort of ties into what we've just been talking about. I think a lot of the value in augmented reality, which is kind of layering information on top of the world as we move through it, actually probably works better orally rather than visually. Um, but I think that's that's speculative. So, now, so that sort of thing you mean, like okay, walking past a particular monument, for example, uh, say, for, say for example you, you're in Canberra and you're visiting the War Memorial, the augmented experience could be someone taking you through and, you know, not for you having to sort of um, purchase a sort of walking audio tour but something that your computer would immediately understand where you are, what you need to know and you could in fact, you know, engage with it through through your ears and obviously your voice as well. Right, and so as a so what well actually simply even often simply by moving through a space, right? So there's a whole you know a whole lot of things to consider around user experience and and how we how we take the context of, of where someone actually is right now and what they seem to be doing, and we can do that all you know there's accelerometers and gyroscopes that can, and geolocation in in pretty much every device, right? And the other thing I think is really important for um uh the you know um to observe about all new technology is that you sort of, um, you know, we have this, we get this enthusiasm, whether it's about second life and whether it's about VR right now. But the, the challenge is that where are the use cases? Where are the things that are demonstrating yeah. that people do this? And the truth, I think the observation you made is we've been doing for 30 or 40 years, we've been getting these little audio tours, right? And people do them and they provide value. So we, we kind of know there is something there to explore, right? Um, I didn't want to derail us back onto, onto, onto that path around AR, but I think that's – I mean, and, and there's very specific use cases in, um, in that, but there's something to explore there. But I, if we come back now perhaps to, to something more in the wheelhouse of, of your particular audience around government communication and, 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 and public, you know, public sector communication and so on, um, and you, you alluded to AI, right? So, yeah. And I think this is, this is really if, – if there are a couple of things that are really exciting me um, and they go together – the one is kind of what happens when we listen rather than look, and the second one is um, what we what we're doing with artificial intelligence, and machine learning. Right now, that's been a thing for a long time. I mean, you alluded to my university degree uh, in the 1980s. I finished, I think, I finished from my computer science degree in 1988, and and one of the things that drove me to do it was AI. And we got to third year, and it was an elective, and it was all about hill climbing algorithms and you know all this kind of stuff. That that was not what was interesting me. Now, obviously, that interests really smart people, and they've been working on that sort of thing for 40 or 50 years, going back to the early 70s with Marvin Minsky and and, and, and his work back there. But what's interesting to me now is that we have this whole layer of very accessible machine learning and artificial intelligence tool sets out of the likes of Watson from IBM. Uh, Amazon Web Services have things that is, they have a thing called Lex, which is a, essentially they're open sourcing, not just open sourcing, but providing as a service the same engine that's driving Alexa. They have a, a, a speech to text and text to speech, um, similarly Google Cloud Platform, similarly Microsoft with Azure, and then a whole range of startups as well. What these do is they make the barriers to entry to at the very least exploring the possibility of adding intelligence to existing products as well as creating new ones really, really low, 
right? This yep. is the sort of – I see this as the sort of you – know, an analogy I sometimes use is the sort of Apple One of artificial intelligence. It's, it's where we're switching from the mainframe and mini where you needed heaps of resources and super smart people and loads of money to use computing to for it as you know teams and individuals. So could you give me an example of a use case, though, today? Right. As yeah. you say, there, there are these tools available. Watson's available. Um, Lex is available. All sorts of artificial intelligence um, applications are there, available, ready to be used. How might somebody start this journey on using artificial intelligence to achieve ultimately what is, you know, the mission of public sector communicators to, you know, strengthen communities and improve the well-being of citizens. What sort of applications could they use today that would help them to achieve that outcome? Right. So you can do some very, very simple things relatively straightforwardly, right? So imagine the recent challenge that Centrelink has had with a great deal of concern by many folks about uh, the potential of overpayments and so on. So we're all aware of that. I think it's kind of, kind of probably going to be a case we talk about for many, many years. But one of the challenges, and, and, and what's been the insurance industry has kind of been exploring this, right, is, is let's, supp- let's suppose a large storm is bearing down on a location. The insurance industry knows they're about to be, to, to, to pardon the pun, deluged with inquiries and claims, right? And right then and there is the the time they make their money because this is, even though they spend it all really, because this is the thing that people have been trusting them for for many years, right? And so insurance companies know that they need to really make sure that those people who have been through this harrowing experience get the service they need, they get their claims dealt with, right? And traditionally, this has scaled as a function of the number of people who can answer phones, right? Yep. And that's, that's, humans don't scale very well. But increasingly, humans are pretty comfortable using computers, uh, mobile apps, and so on to interact with all kinds of services. So the insurance industry is very strongly exploring and using, um, you know, a technology we roughly call chatbots. And the problem with that term is that it's kind of, you know, I think it's rather stereotyped. I think we've already got preconceptions about that. And we've all used Clippy and, and you know, and we all have an idea that it's, pretty, it's a pretty a boring and, and actually annoying technology that that doesn't really work. But the truth is, in the last couple of years, through a lot of these AI technologies, um, the the ability to create and deploy specialised chatbots in this sort of environment has become very, very acceptable and it it works pretty well. And I I would say over the next couple of years, it's going to become extremely – it's going to work extremely well because the thing about machine learning is the learning part, right? The more a a robot, a chatbot or bot does something, the better it gets – that thing. So I would say, for example, where um, government folks get a lot of inquiries, especially if, if they spike around certain like, times of year or certain events that occur, exploring the way in which um, things like triaging communications, even if it's not a robot that replies to someone, getting an email or someone fills a form or some other form of communication, even verbal, even they, they leave messages on phones, that can be converted from speech to text very well these days. And I would say within in a couple of years, already there's a lot of work that suggests that at, at least at the stuff that's starting to leave the laboratories, you're getting as good as human stenographers around this. Right? Okay. So so even I've seen these examples of using in triage of emails. So the deluge of emails, which are the ones we need to reply to in what order, right? If you're getting hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands of email communications or web forms being filled in. 
So it's, I think a big part of it initially is simply working out who needs to be responded to in what order. And there's a lot of work around that that's, that's occurring. And then I think, um, and as I suggested in the insurance industry, um, basically utilising, let's call them chatbots. I'm not comfortable with the term, but it's what people use. Utilising chatbots in order to perhaps deal with a non-trivial percentage of the kinds of inquiries that people have. And if you can, if you can maybe have 10 or 15% of the inquiries that would normally go through to a human answered by a bot, the, the person's happier because, you know, 2 a.m. in the morning and they, they've had their problem solved. They just needed some solution that was relatively straightforward or or at a peak time they, they go away. Then you're saving money. You're, you're creating a better user experience. And if it doesn't work for them, the next fallback is perhaps a human that they chat with ultimately falling through to a phone call. Right. Yeah. So I think – And ultimately, one- you know, the, the payoff is not only a better experience and better service but it saves taxpayers money. Right. So whichever way you want to slice it and dice it, if you want to look at it from the perspective of saving money, there's a case there, absolutely. But I think, to be quite honest, if we start with the perspective, and we've seen this a lot with you know, the work of the Government Digital Service in the UK, US Digital Service, and, and obviously DTA in Australia, this is, you know, like we're trying to get the delivery of government services, not just digital ones, as kind of being human-centred, right? So it sounds kind of ironic in a way that we might use robots to make human-centred experiences better, but... In, in at least some non-trivial percentage of the time, it, that can be the case. So, so these are, this is kind of really low-hanging fruit. Um, the co- there's you know non-trivial cost in de- developing some of this technology, but it's not it, literally it's not rocket science. It's a, it would be rocket science five years ago in a lot of ways. You would be you would be employing you know teams of machine learning experts and 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 you know getting huge data sets and and, and so on. These days, a lot of this stuff. The ex, you know, is is very very accessible, and certainly with with even the kind of regular government budgets um, that we see around projects, it, you know, it, it well, well and truly falls into into those sort of budgets. And as you observe, there are direct measurable cost savings in addition to you creating a better experience for your citizens and and, and other people who use your services. So I think, to be quite honest, right now the opportunities uh, to, to deploy this technology are extraordinary and um i just if i was a little bit younger i think it's probably what i would drop everything and and focus all my energy on (laughs) well you know there's who knows you might be in be able to implant some chip and we could live i think we're all going to live a whole lot longer than our you know our grandparents and our parents and i think our children will live a, a lot longer than we will as well as they um you know come to hack themselves and 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 live forever but it's a it's a fascinating challenge, I think, for people working in government communication is to is to accept the challenge of of technology and really, you know, often people are in the space because they didn't like mathematics and they don't like computer science and they find all of that stuff a little bit scary. And so, but I don't think that there's a choice these days. I think, you know, we all have to accept that we've got to learn more, we've got to accept more, we've got to try to understand you know, how do we put the citizen at the centre of our considerations? And as you've just very articulately outlined, if through technology such, you know, artificial intelligence driven by machine learning, if that can deliver a better experience, well, it's incumbent upon us to understand that utility and to deploy that utility in service of the community. So it's, it's as I say, I, I know it's hard for, for a lot of people and I know I've had that feedback from a number of people who listen to the podcast that, you know, this stuff is hard, but 
And I think it's very exciting at the same time. And 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 you um, you, you outline some very thought provoking concepts there. And I'll uh, I'll go away and think about my ears and think about whether or not I'd be ready to implant something. Whenever I've li- listened to that neural lace stuff with um, uh, Elon Musk, I've always thought, nah, I don't know if I could go down that path. But um, where, where we start, where we stop, um, what's going to happen? Um, but just even observing the changes, I know in my own habits, I think uh, you know, it, it's rapid, uh, it's, it's compelling, it's, it's, it's something that we've, we really have to pay attention to, isn't it? The dramatic change that um, technology is going to have um, on our individual lives, but also the life of the communities as well that we serve. Absolutely. And the observation I would make about, about you, you, your concern, which I think is legitimate around people who are sort of had, had bad experience with science and technology growing up, um, is, you know, I think the important component here is that we can develop all the technology in the world. And Google Glass is, I think, a perfect example. What, what we need is to turn them into products. I guess that's the term we use. We need to turn it into something that solves human problems. And I think this is where design in the broader sense comes yeah. in. I have a little analogy, which is, you know, technology plus design equals, you know, product or, or solution, right? The, you know, that we see so many technologies which are a solution in search of a problem. And I think this is where it's incumbent upon people who, who may feel intimidated to some extent around technology or, or the deeper aspects of it to actually explore what they, what they allow us to do. And this is why I'm particularly excited about this sort of what I, you know, some people refer to as AI as a service, right? And that you, you know, these AI services that you essentially kind of explore and use, and they're all all the hard work is being done by IBM and Amazon and Google and Microsoft. They're they're essentially the very high level technologies that you can even play with for some of the translation and other APIs. You can literally take a blob of text and paste it in a box and it will get you back the result. So you can even explore what these technologies can do without the slightest bit of, of kind of implementation, any development. <laughs> ever, right? So I would really implore people to go and just start exploring what capabilities there are from these various platforms because you know it, it doesn't require mathematics and 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 so on to use in this look i i my analogy to some extent is is the kind of rise of of, of WYSIWYG and the mac and, and PageMaker and these sort of desktop publishing tools in the late 80s that really revolutionized and democratized content production and distribution um you know, that's to me, to some extent, the sort of where we are with this now that, you know, if you go back before the late 1980s, in order to create a publication, in, you know, I'm sure some of, some of the audience here were part of those days, you know, there were a lot of very arcane technical you know, skills you needed, whether they were cutting pieces of paper up and sticking them on surfaces, or whether they were these letter set style kind of command line interfaces. And then Photoshop came along and allowed, you know, a whole new generation of content creation to flourish. And, you know, I sort of feel that it's a, it's a similar kind of revolution. So, so if you're, you know, a content expert, a designer, what, whatever your your field is, I think people should start thinking about, wow, if if I can do this, what would I do with it? Yeah. Because it's not science fiction anymore. <laughs> Indeed it's not. Well, John, thank you very much for giving up some of your valuable time to spend with the audience today. I know that you've uh, you've certainly got me thinking and I'm sure you have them thinking as well. So good luck with uh, uh, your peering into the future and continuing to understand uh, and, and to look for what's 
uh, on the horizon. And uh, I thank you very much for joining us today. And to you, the listener, thank you very much for joining us once again for what was a really thought-provoking discussion with John Allsop today. So thank you very much for giving up some of your time this week. And we'll be back at the same time next week. So it's bye for now. You've been listening to In Transition, the program dedicated to the practice of content communication in the public sector. For more, visit us at contentgroup.com.au.